Our sermon text this evening is John chapter 16, verses 4 through 7, but I'd like to begin reading at verse 1, just to give us a sense of the context. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you asked me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, again, we come to your word this evening. And we come to sit at the feet of our true teacher, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has granted to us insight into his word through the spirit of truth. And so, Father, we pray, even as your spirit first opened our eyes to see not only our sin, but to see in Christ the remedy of that sin, to see him as our Savior. May we also come to to see his promises and the greatness of those promises, especially in his promise to grant his spirit to all those who believe in him. And show us, Father, the importance of embracing this promise this evening, that we might be comforted, that we might be helped and strengthened, that we might walk with Christ more faithfully. As we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So when you go to the airport, you only have two options, departures or arrivals. There's no middle ground. There's only two options you have. And if you think about it, we, we tend to associate <clears throat> emotions with those two options. Uh, departures is often associated with sadness. We're saying goodbye to somebody who has spent time with us, perhaps family. Perhaps we're sending off a college student for the first time. Uh, so we tend to associate that with, with sadness. But arrivals, that's different. It's a reunion, uh, seeing a relative, uh, that same child coming home from college, Anyway, we tend to associate uh, those things with these emotions. The same is true in other things of life, too. Think of it as a church. Uh, You receive new members, the arrival of new members. That's that's cause for great joy and encouragement. Then there's the other side. When you say goodbye to people who have been part of this church for a long time, been special to you, that departure brings us great sorrow. Another form of arrival that brings us a gladness is the birth of a child or of a grandchild this news of this, this new uh, life appearing. And then death is a departure that is perhaps one of the saddest things that we can experience in this life. Those types of emotions are on the surface of this text. In fact, Christ is acknowledging that. He's addressing the sadness that he knows his disciples are feeling because he's addressing his departure. But he's also speaking of an arrival. And so that's what we want to look at this evening in verses 4 through 7. In verses 4 through 5, there he speaks about his departure. We could call it my departure. 
And then verses 6 and 7, your advantage. And then verse 7, your gift. My departure, verses 4 through 5. Your advantage, verses 6 through 7. And your gift, verse 7. Now notice in verse 4, Jesus says, at the beginning, he did not talk about these things. That phrase, these things, beginning of verse 1, is repeated. And so the natural question is, what is he talking about with these things? And specifically, he has in view the hostility, uh, the adversity that his disciples will face from the world and people who will oppose him. He's been talking about this sort of persecution uh, that his disciples are going to experience. But he did not talk about those things. He said at the beginning of his ministry, why? Look what he says, because I was with you. At the beginning of his ministry, he talked to them about other things. He was training them. He was teaching them fundamentals about what does it mean to be in the kingdom of God. He was providing for them. He was even protecting them. And just think about it. For three years, these men literally did not need to worry about anything. They did not need to worry about any theological question that the Pharisees would ask them because they had Jesus to answer those questions or perhaps even confuse them by asking them a question they could not answer. They didn't need to worry about any danger. They could be out sea, at sea and the, and the seas could rise up and the winds come up and, and Jesus would take care of that. He would, he would calm the sea. They did not need to worry about food. He literally could produce food on the spot, multiply it for thousands and thousands of people. They did not need to worry about their health. If they became sick, it doesn't matter. Here's Jesus. He can heal you. I mean, so literally, in anything of life you can think about, they had no reason to worry. They enjoyed total safety and comfort for one reason, because he was present. He was was with them. But that was then. This is now. And he says he's about to leave. He's on the very eve of his, his suffering. And so it's time for him to prepare them for these things this hostility, this persecution that's going to come when he is absent. He wants to brace them for what lies ahead when he's gone. At the beginning of his ministry, he says, that was not the right time, but now is the right time because we're at the end of his ministry. And so notice what he says in verse 5. He says, but now I'm going to him who sent me, but none of you are asking me this question, where are you going? Now, he had spoken about his departure before. And what he's saying is they were still not asking him the right questions. And in fact, they've used these very words before. Peter uses these words in chapter 13, verse 36. Literally, where are you going? And Thomas basically asks this, but through a question in chapter 14, verse 5, about where they're going. But they were asking about the fact of his leaving. Here he's addressing the meaning of his leaving. What's the significance of his departure. Why are they not asking a question about that? What does it mean that he's going to be returning to the Father? They're they're truly not understanding it. This happened in chapter 14, verse 28. He says, you heard me say that I'm going away, but if you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father. And what he was saying in chapter 14 is similar to what he's saying here. If you really understood the importance of what I'm saying, then you'd be happy. But they do not comprehend the implications of what he's saying. How could they? How could they possibly understand the the implications of what he is saying? The waves this will send throughout their their lives, the tidal waves this will send throughout history. There's no way they could appreciate that. 
It's like you and a friend are in a kayak and you're, you've just been looking at a beautiful glacier in Alaska and your friend says to you as you turn away, oh, a piece of ice just fell from that, that glacier. And you think, well, that's no big deal. We saw it before. But, but what he failed to tell you is it's the size of a football field. That's going to send waves your way. It's going to have massive implications for you and your little tiny kayak. And Christ is trying to alert them to the same thing, that they could not possibly understand what is about to happen. But they're beginning to taste some of it. They're beginning to appreciate a little bit of of what he's saying because of what he says in verses 6 through 7. Look what he says. Because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. So some part of it is beginning to impact them. Now, Jesus knows what he's talking about. He knows the, the effect of his words. And he knows what I was just talking about, that they have become accustomed to his presence. They've, they've come uh, to just simply take for granted his provision and his protection. They felt totally secure because he was present. But now he's talking about his being betrayed. He's been talking about his suffering in Jerusalem, his dying, and his going away. And on top of all that, that they will be hated by the world, that they're going to be opposed and even persecuted. And this has rattled them. It's filled their minds with confusion. It's filled their hearts with grief. To think that they will not be enjoying his, his presence, this is, this is unbearable to them. And to face all this opposition without his protection, without his help? Well, Jesus is going away, but it's not what they think. It's like in chapter 14, verse 18. He says, I'm going away, but I'm not going to leave you as orphans. It's not going to be like that at all. In fact, he says in verse 7, it's for your good. Look what he says. It's to your advantage. Despite the sorrow that you're feeling right now, I'm telling you the truth. This is going to be for your benefit. That would be a hard thing for them to absorb. Because Christ talking about his leaving, it seems like bad news. But he's saying, no, it's actually good news. In chapter 14, verse 1, he says, I'm going away. He says, but do not let your hearts be troubled. I'm going to prepare a place for you. In other words, he's spoken about his departure before, but he, it's not a departure without purpose. It's not without some sort of silver lining. And it's not forever. This is not adieu. This is au revoir. Or totzines. Or a and Pick your language. This is not forever. This is until we meet again. This is truly to your advantage. But what does that mean? What is this advantage? And that's what he gets at in verse 7. If Christ does not go away, the helper cannot come. These two things are tied inseparably together. Christ going away and the Spirit coming. Now, when Christ talks about his going away, what is he talking about? He's talking about his ascending to heaven, his ascending to the right hand of God. And it's that ascension that proves that Christ was successful in his work. Christ wins the victory over sin through his atoning death. Christ wins the victory over the grave. How? Through the power of his resurrection. But it's his ascension that proves that. In his ascending to the right hand of God, it's to do one thing. It's to receive the reward for accomplishing his work, namely the Holy Spirit. 
Now, Scripture tells us that when Christ ascends to the right hand of God, he receives many honors. He receives a name that is above every name. He is, he is given that title as head, where all things are placed under his feet, all rule, authority, and power, dominion. These are the honors that are given to him, but he's also given a prize. And what is that prize? That prize is the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that is the crowning achievement of his work. It's the proof that he has been successful in his suffering and his death and his resurrection. It's like this. Let's say you run a race and you win that race. So what are your rewards in winning that race? Well, you, you receive the admiration of, of the crowd and you hear that in their applause. You receive the congratulations of your fellow competitors and that of your family. But what is the prize? The prize is that medal. It's that, that ribbon or that trophy. That's the prize that proves that, that you won that race. The prize is the promised Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit that was promised to Christ by the Father if he would be successful in his work, in his death, and his resurrection. Here is the trophy and the crown jewel of all the work of Christ. And he says here that if he does not ascend, then the Spirit does not descend. There is no prize. There is no reward for Christ. There's no promised gift for us. But he says, if I go away, then I will send the Spirit. So Christ giving the Holy Spirit, this is absolutely conditioned upon Christ going to the Father. Again, these two things are linked together. Christ ascending, the Spirit descending. We see this in this same gospel in John chapter 7, verse 38. It says there that whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This he said about the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. You see what it's saying? When Christ becomes glorified, then the Spirit is poured out upon the church. This is a requirement of Christ to purchase the gift of the Holy Spirit through his exaltation. Christ succeeds in his work, in his death, and in his resurrection. So he ascends, and the Holy Spirit, that becomes the capstone of his work. That is his reward. And if it is required of Christ, then it is a prerogative of Christ to send the Spirit. It means the Spirit is his to give. It is the ascended Christ that pours out the gift of the Spirit on the church when? At Pentecost. When we go to Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, Peter gives that great speech to explain what is happening with all these men speaking different languages. And what he shows there is that the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost is the outpouring of Christ's gift upon his church. In Acts 2.33, Peter tells us exactly the same thing we've been talking about. He says, being exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing, that Christ has ascended in glory. He has ascended in that exalted glory. He's received the Spirit, and he's pouring out that Spirit upon the church, the promise of the Holy Spirit that Christ has purchased for his church. And here's what's interesting is that in the New Testament, then, what we read is that the coming of the Holy Spirit is, in one sense, at the same time, the coming of Christ himself. In John 14, 16, Christ puts it this way, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth, 
And he says in verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. You see what he's saying? He's saying, I will come to you in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will continue my ministry among you, that Christ comes in and through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. This is why, brothers and sisters, in the New Testament, many times the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Christ. He's called the Spirit of Jesus Christ or the Spirit of Jesus. It's not like the New Testament is confusing these two distinct members of the Trinity. It's simply saying that Christ is fulfilling his ministry uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why uh, the book of Acts begins with the idea that Christ is continuing his ministry, but through the power of the Holy Spirit poured out upon the church. To have that bodily presence of Christ, that is a great comfort to the disciples. But now the comforter, the Holy Spirit, indwells every believer on earth. The Spirit continues the ministry of Christ. It's the Holy Spirit that that clothes the church with power so that she can carry out the Great Commission. Remember what Christ said to his disciples? Wait in Jerusalem. Wait until you are clothed with power from on high. And he's talking about the Holy Spirit because they could not carry out this This ministry without the Holy Spirit. We, the Church of Christ, cannot carry out our ministry without the the Holy Spirit. This is better. Christ is telling the truth. It's, It's to our advantage for him to go so that the Spirit would come. It is for our good that Jesus went away. So let me alert you to something that only a Bible scholar could tell you. When Jesus says it's for your good, he means it's for your good. It's very simple. That's not hyperbole. He's not overstating it. It's for the good of the church of Jesus Christ that he has gone away. And yet every single one of us who's a Christian at some point, secretly in our heart, has said, I wish I could have been with Jesus in Galilee. I wish I could have been with him, seen him, and see what he was like. I was reading a book that was being pushed recently, and the author said, I've always wondered what was the shape of his nose and the color of his hair and the sound of his voice. All of us would think that would be so much better. I'd be such a better Christian if that were the case. And Jesus is telling us here, that's not the right instinct. It's better that I go away in order that the Spirit would come. J.C. Ryle puts it this way. He says, the universal, invisible presence of the Holy Spirit in the church is better than the visible bodily presence of Christ with the church. It's a great comfort to the disciples that Jesus was with them. It is the ultimate comfort of the entire church that the Holy Spirit is in us and indwells us with power. So whatever the disciples might think, whatever you might think, whatever I might think, this is better. It's better that the Spirit has come. As I was saying earlier, how could the church do its work unless Christ ascended and the Spirit has come? When we think about the gospel, what are we talking about? The gospel, in the most technical sense, in the most concentrated sense, is redemption accomplished. What we're talking about there in the gospel is that Christ, in his suffering and in his death, has satisfied all that's poised to condemn us, and that Christ, in his resurrection and his exaltation, has triumphed over all those things that would seek to subdue us. We're talking specifically about Christ's death and his resurrection. That is the gospel. That's redemption 
accomplished. But John Calvin says it this way, what use is Christ to us as long as he stays outside of us? That work of redemption needs to be applied to us. And that's what happens through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But Christ is accomplished, is applied to us by the Holy Spirit. He applies that redemption to us. And there's so many doctrines that we could talk about this evening. We're not going to talk about all of them. Just be at peace. But just think of a few of them. We talk about justification by faith. The fact that you and I stand in right relationship with God by faith. Where does that faith come from? It's the Holy Spirit that works that faith in our hearts. We talk about our effectual calling. God's powerful summons upon him, upon us. How does that take place? Through the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that removes that that heart of stone and gives to us a heart of flesh, as Ezekiel says in chapter 36. We're told to strive in holiness. How are we to do that? Sanctification, how do we do that? And Scripture tells us the only way we are able to put to death the deeds of the flesh and our sin is by the Holy Spirit. How is that fruit of righteousness to be manifested in us? What we call the fruit of the Spirit. You guessed it. It comes by the Spirit. God tells us that in this gracious act, you and I are adopted. But every day doesn't feel like we're adopted. We don't always feel like a child of God. That's why God has given to us the Spirit of adoption. That's one of the titles for the Holy Spirit, that Spirit of adoption that testifies to our hearts that we are God's children. That comes through the Holy Spirit. This morning I quoted Philippians 1.6 that says this, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. He'll carry it forward to the day of Christ. It doesn't say the good work he began for us or to us. It says the good work he began in us. That's the work he began in us by the Holy Spirit. That work of regeneration, that work of transformation. This work that is sustained, how? Through prayer. Prayer is a means of grace God has given to us. But you know what Romans 8 says? It says we're weak. And we do not always know what to pray for as we ought. And so he's given to us the Holy Spirit who intercedes for us in words, in groans that words cannot express. The gospel assures us that you and I, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. But there are many days when you and I feel unsettled. What do we need? We need that peace that comes from God by the Holy Spirit who ministers his grace to us so that he will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. This all comes by the Holy Spirit. It's a spirit that fuels those fires of joy in our hearts. It's the Holy Spirit that pours those rivers of love into our hearts. When Christ says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you, what is he talking about? He's talking about the presence of the Holy Spirit. I was struck earlier by Elder Matt's prayer when he's praying for our brothers and sisters in places like North Korea, in China, Indonesia, Eritrea, in the Sudan, all these places. We have brothers and sisters in Christ who are all alone in a prison cell, all alone in a container in Eritrea. Are they alone? What are they banking upon? What is their only hope? It's the Holy Spirit who abides with them. They're not alone. And there's going to come a point in your life, some crisis point, when you're going to feel all alone, and it's going to come down to, do you believe what Christ is saying? That it's to your advantage, that he has gone so the Spirit would come and testify to your heart 
that you are never alone, that he is with you. And we think of our great adversary, the devil. The devil is greater than we are. He's stronger, he's more knowledgeable, he's more powerful. The devil is greater than we, but what does scripture say? Greater is the one who is in us than he who is in the world. The devil is no match for the third person of the Trinity, this glorious God. And as David says, I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, but I will fear no evil. Why? He says, because you are with me. That is the hope of every Christian. That's why it's right for me to say this evening that you have every advantage. Every advantage in this world. Why? Because Christ has ascended and the Spirit has come. Sinclair Ferguson put it this way. Every single spiritual benefit that you have is either because you are in Christ or because Christ is in you. Christ is in you by his Spirit. And he has received the crown jewel of his work. And he has been pleased to graciously pour this out upon his bride, his church, you and me, who he loves. And it's true, we do not have Christ's physical presence. But the spirit of Christ is present in us. And you and I, we have not heard the human voice of Christ, but we hear his word because it's the spirit who's given us ears to hear his word. And we have not seen his face, the face of Christ, but we will. We will. Because you see, I remind you of another truth. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of what is to come. We were just singing, it's the Holy Spirit that is the earnest. He is the down payment of what is to come. He is that guarantee that God has given to us, that you and I, we will be with Christ and we will see him. That you and I, we are not yet home. And so the Spirit has made us home in us until we are home with Christ in glory, in that kingdom of glory. And we enjoy so many benefits today because we have the Spirit. But these are only a foretaste, a small foretaste of what is to come. You and I, even now, we enjoy the forgiveness of sin, but we're looking forward to a day, looking forward to a day when we will have no sin whatsoever. You and I right now have been made acceptable in the sight of God through the righteousness of Christ, but one day that righteousness will be perfected. That holiness will be perfected in heaven. You and I, we have peace and joy by the Spirit right now, but one day we will have everlasting peace and joy beyond measure. We are loved right now without measure, but one day we'll be loved without end and without any trace of doubt in our hearts. Even now, Scripture tells us that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing can separate us from the merits of his work, his righteousness and his holiness and all of his gifts, including the Spirit, But one day, nothing will separate us from the beauty of his glorious presence in heaven. And it's the Holy Spirit who guarantees us of this great joy that is to come. Every person in this room one day is going to experience the great departure from this world. But for those who believe, that will be immediately followed by our arrival at home, our true home. What we have now is better. What we will have then is best. Let us pray. Our gracious God and our Father, we thank you for your truth.
Thank you for its comfort, its help, the way that it strengthens us and the way it gives us perspective to put all things in their right light in this world. We thank you that we will never, ever be alone. Even if all of our friends and family should forsake us, we will not be alone. And so we thank you, Father, for this marvelous gift that came at such a cost, and yet it is ours. So we, may we walk by faith, but not just by faith, may we walk by the power of the Spirit that Christ has poured out upon his church, even us. We pray this with thanksgiving in our hearts, and in Jesus' name, amen.